Hey guys, welcome to a Light in the Darkness podcast. I'm Carly Robison. I'm a wife, a mother, and a person who's been suffering with severe health challenges for over 10 years. Through that time, I've had successes and failures while trying to maintain a positive attitude. Now I want to share what I've learned with you, hoping to make your hard times a little easier. This podcast is to help those of us facing times of darkness and trial find ways to let the light in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to my A Light in the Darkness podcast. I truly appreciate all of the support that you've been giving me and my guests the past couple of months. Their stories are so inspirational, and I know that many people can find hope and strength through them. Today's no different. I'm so excited to have my friend Heidi Totten here with us. Thanks so much for being here today, Heidi. Oh, you're so welcome. I appreciate it. So before we get started, I wanted to just tell everybody a little bit about you. So Heidi Totten is an eclectic wife and a mother of two relatively normal children. She spent her early career building technical teams around the world during the dot-com era. And 10 years ago, she launched her own business by helping entrepreneurs and small businesses go global by embracing social media and online marketing. Her focus is connection and collaboration. Heidi has helped hundreds of entre- entrepreneurs over the past three years. She runs Heidi Totten Consulting and the Eclectic Entrepreneurs as a way to help the most people possible during her one crazy life. In her spare time, she is the Executive Director of 100 Humanitarians International, a grassroots nonprofit that focuses on mentoring families in economic development in Kenya, Africa. She's taken over 200 people on 18 expeditions. Her happy place is hauling down roads in Kenya in dusty Jeeps, but she's also known for her love of tacos, guacamole, and chocolate. (laughs) So welcome again, Heidi. Thank you. So I'm so excited to tell everybody about all of the wonderful humanitarian efforts that you have going on. But first, I'd love to get you get to know you kind of as a woman, a wife, a mother, and a daughter of God. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, well, um, I think the biggest thing that I want people to know about me is that I'm just normal. Like I, I never set out to... Um, honestly, I never set out in life to make waves or to, uh, do what I'm doing. I just thought, okay, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to graduate from college and I'm going to get married and I'm going to have kids and I'm going to live happily ever after. And, and so for me to veer from that was a huge, I mean that, you know, that's what a lot of of girls grow up thinking, right? I should have known, however, when I was a little kid, my mom said that I used to go up to strangers like at shopping malls and just say, Hey, can I have a sip of your drink? You know, so I was not <laughs> a shy, reserved kid at all. And mm-hmm. I always was kind of one of those people that was like, Ooh, let's do that. That sounds like fun. Oh, let's try that. Oh, let's do that. And, you know, of course, over the years now I'm 48. And so I'm a little bit more mellow because I'm, you know, getting older and a little more tired. <laughs> what I want people to know about me is that I'm, I'm actually really quite normal and kind of awkward. I mean, I say that my hashtag is rock awkward because honestly, like the things that I do on a daily basis that I'm like, if people really knew like 
the dork that I am, they wouldn't be friends with me. Although, you know, I think some people are friends with me because of that as well. So, um, <laughs> but I grew up in, in inner city Phoenix, mostly. I was born in the backwoods of West Virginia. And then my parents were teachers at a college there. And then we moved to Utah. My parents got divorced when I was two. And then my mom and I moved down to Arizona. And, uh, and so I was basically raised an only child, although I have two stepsisters and a half sister because my dad remarried. Um, my mom remarried when I was in middle school um, and my stepfather was very abusive and an alcoholic and it, mm. you know, was a really challenging part of our lives. Um, but then we kicked him out. <laughs> and so that's just like the, the fast version of that, but we kicked him out and yeah. then got on the road to healing. I went to BYU and I did spend my summers in Provo. So I had this kind of split life where during the winter I was down in Phoenix in the inner city. And during the summers I was roaming the woods and fields of Provo and had free rain and slept in the backyard. And so it was kind of this interesting childhood, you know, and my parents actually both spent their summers away from home. And so I have been searching for my kids entire life for a place to send them during the summer, but no takers so far. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it just was a great experience to be able to have that independence. Um, so I went to BYU I graduated from BYU with a degree in family science and then, um, kind of hung out in Provo, Utah, trying to figure out if I was going to get married or not. Uh, for a couple of years. And my cousin was planning on moving to New York. He was in a theater and did a lot of theater for uh, at BYU. And he said, hey, if I don't move to New York, we should move to Washington, D.C. And this was in January of 1997. And I said, oh, hey, I should move there anyway. So I set a date. I said, hey, I'm leaving the day after general conference. I had no place to live. I had no job. I had $800 in the bank. And we got in the car. And he and I drove across the country and he wrecked my car in Chattanooga. So we clunked into Northern Virginia. Fortunately, my, um, my, our moms had a, had a first cousin there that said, yeah, you can stay, you know, stay here until you find something. And I started temping. My very first temp job in DC was at the Watergate hotel. How's that for funny? Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, I'm right in the middle of conspiracy and I I've arrived and and so um, I spent seven years in D.C. Um, where I met my husband and had my son. And then we moved back to Utah to be closer to family. Um, back in D.C., I was a technical recruiter and worked for like America Online and SAIC, which is a huge government contractor, small businesses, large businesses, startups. I mean, I kind of ran the gamut uh, during those years. And I, I actually started my last official job in an office full time. I started the day before 9-11 and it was in Arlington. And so it was, you know, I went into work on that Monday and then on Tuesday I went into work and I remember getting an email from my roommate saying from CNN saying a small plane flew into the world trade center. And I went into my boss's office and said, Oh, we should, you know, a small plane flew into the world trade center. So we went down to the security officers office because he had a, a, you know, old box TV. And as we were watching it and watching what was happening, we saw smoke go past his window because you could see the Pentagon. 
from his office window. And that's when, you know, when we knew something really huge had happened because at that point they weren't reporting that any, you know, that anything had flown into the, the, uh, Pentagon. And so, you know, so that radically changed things obviously. Um, but it was a really interesting experience to be part of the dot-com era back in that, um, in that world. I mean, it was kind of Silicon Valley of the East coast, a lot of tech companies. And, and so, you know, once I had children, then I was all settled in to be a stay-at-home mom and God had other plans for me. And he said, okay, here's the deal. Like, uh, I've got some work for you to do. And so, uh, I helped to start a charter school and then I started, um, I started my own company with two business partners, a recruiting company, and that didn't work out, um, due to mostly business decision differences. And so, uh, I jumped into entrepreneurship and I've been doing that for the last 10 years. And then five years ago, got on a plane and went to Kenya and that radically changed my life as well. So I have these moments, right. Where somebody comes in and says, Hey, we should do this. And I'm like, okay. And then I move across the country and then it's like, Hey, we should do this. Okay. And then I go to Kenya. Right. So (laughs) I wish that I could say that I'm this, Oh, this is in the plan and I'm going to map out all these things, but I do so much accidentally. And then I just roll with it, you know, and I figure, all right, why not? Sounds good. So, <laughs> so it's been a, an interesting life so far. I'm about halfway done. <laughs> if I live to 100, which you know, since the name of my organization is 100 Humanitarians International, I figure there's some sort of like mindset thing with that that I'm going to live to be a hundred. And so, for sure, my, my <laughs> ultimate goal is to sit on a porch when I'm 90, surrounded by my, by my great grandchildren, telling them stories and having them think mm. that I'm lying to them. <laughs> Yeah, I could see that happening. Definitely. So what made you decide to go to Kenya that first time then it was just somebody was like, Hey, let's go. And you're like, sure. (laughs) It really was peer pressure. Um, you know, jumping into the entrepreneur world in Utah, it's a, it's a big and tight knit world and everybody knows everybody. So it's like very, I mean, there's only 3 million people in this state. So, um, it's, it, you really get to know people really fast and really well. And I had a, a good friend, Lori Hildebrand, who we were business partners in doing workshops and stuff together. And she had gone twice and she kept saying, you really should go. It's just, she's like, it's such a cool experience. And then the, the people that I went with um, said, oh yeah, you should totally come. You should totally come. And I kept putting it off because realistically, I mean, I have lymphedema in my legs that I've had since I was about um, 10 or 11. And mm-hmm. so I shouldn't really get on a plane for 20 hours. I mean, it's just not the best of ideas, but yeah. tell um, us really quick, tell us what lymphedema is. Uh, so there's two types of lymphedema. One is primary, which is child onset, meaning my lymphatic system probably never fully developed. And then once you hit puberty, uh, it just like my legs will swell and they don't go down. I mean, they did when I was younger, but now, um, it, it causes a lot of problems. Um, and I have flare ups and things like that. And then there's also secondary lymphedema, which is 
if you have cancer and you have surgery like breast cancer and you have your lymph nodes removed, then it can cause the swelling in your arms and, and stuff okay. like that. So millions and millions of people suffer from lymphedema and it is, a, yeah. it never, it's never talked about, you know, people don't yeah. know what it is. There's no, um, I mean, there are treatments in terms of like compression and things like that and massage, but there is no cure. And, uh, it's not covered by insurance and, you know, there's no surgeries that are tried and true. And it, it really is a huge challenge for many, many people. Um, so this is something that I've always had to be really careful with. If I get any infections, it turns into cellulitis in my legs, which means oh, I'm wow. on an IV drip in the ER. And so going to a third world country, <laughs> not super smart. Um, yeah. but, and plus there were like 50 other countries I wanted to go to. I never had any idea like that I would go to Africa at all, much less yeah. like 16 times. And, you know, <laughs> uh, I didn't know where Kenya really was on the map East, West. I don't know. I mean, it was just kind of like one of those countries over there. I just, now that being said, I did watch live aid in 1987 and I was yes. really all about like, you know, feed Africa, feed the world. And and all of that. And, and, you know, I, I loved that, that concept and, and, but it just, it never, it wasn't, I, I take people who are like, oh my gosh, I've dreamed of going to Africa, any country for my whole life. I'm like, really? Didn't, you know, like that didn't. So it was sort of funny that I did it and I thought, okay, I'll just go over there, get it, get it over with. Um, it'll be fine. It'll be a fun trip. Yeah. Exactly. Then, Check that box off kind of a, yeah, yep. I did it. <laughs> All right. We're good. You know? And, uh, yeah. and then it was, uh, day two, I was sitting in an Anglican church and we were waiting for people to get there. Uh, African time, <laughs> Kenyan time is so unbelievably real. <laughs> you know, we kind of joke about Mormon standard time, but we, yeah. we don't have anything on the Kenyans. And so, um, so we were waiting and I remember I was just kind of looking around this church and I turned and I, I was taking pictures and I, I turned and I looked at Moses, who's now the executive director um, in Kenya of 100 humanitarians. And I took a picture of him. Um, cause you know, we were all just dancing and singing and clapping and stuff like that. And, and I took a picture of him and it was like this veil dropped and it was really disconcerting because I had this overwhelming feeling like, you know, him, you know, these people, and this is one of the major reasons why you're on this planet is, is wow. to be a part of their lives. And I was like, huh? <laughs> and it really, I, I gotta be honest, it really freaked me out. And I kind of, yeah. um, like for the next couple of weeks, it was just, this was unnerving. Um, and I remember when I got on the plane to leave the Maasai Mara, um, where you go on safari in Kenya, I got, I, I was about to get on the plane and David, who is uh, one of our drivers and, you know, works on projects with us over there. He like squished my face like this. And he said, <laughs> you promise me that you'll come back. Promise me. And I just was like, how can I not come back? You know? Um, but I didn't know. I, I mean, man, looking back, it's so funny when you look back on stuff like that and you're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I mean, there are so many times where Moses and I will be like, did you ever think this from that? You know, and yeah. we're like, no, I mean, it, it's baffling to us. And we'll sit there and punch each other sometimes and be like, 
hey, that was cool. You know, I mean, cause, yeah. cause it was just, it was so, and I mean, he's 31. He was t- like 25 at the time. I'm like old enough to be his mom, practically 17. <laughs> you know, like so. yeah. And and so it was this, this thing where I was like, how, how are we going to do this? We're talking about different ages, genders, cultures, continents, everything, languages, mindsets. I mean, it was so like, what, what's going on here? But God knew what he was doing. You know, he just knew what he was doing. And, and it's, um, it's been quite a journey over the last five years to, to work with Moses and David and Christine and Anita and Jacob and Dominic and, you know, all of these friends of mine over there and to understand what they're trying to accomplish and what their hopes and dreams are and, uh, work together on this. It's just been powerful. In fact, that just this morning, uh, the the big promise that I made is that I would help build a cultural center and we're building a guest house. And this morning Moses sent me an updated picture of it. And it, it looks just like the blueprints that we had made several years ago. And I said, mm-hmm. I can't believe that this is happening. I can't believe that we've done this. You know, like mm-hmm. we built a house that people can go and stay in and serve the Maasai. And it's just, it's amazing. And it, there's no way that we could have done it without God guiding us and without yeah. seeing the miracles and the synchronicities along the way. So yeah, that's beautiful. We'll talk about the cultural center in just a little bit and the guest house. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to kind of go back a little bit. So what made you decide? So you went on the trip to Kenya and you got home. What made you decide, okay, I'm going to start this humanitarian organization that will help the people over there? Yeah, well, that was not my intention. <laughs> I was like, now I'll just keep going on trips and do cool stuff, yeah. you know? So um, I, my, like I said, my degree is in family science. And I kept thinking about the experiences that I had and thinking about how uh, some of the things that I had learned in college and in life, that, that there were things that I could teach these families in terms of self-reliance. Um, and so I was looking at it as a temporal welfare a situation where I was like, what impact would it have? Because a lot of people go over and they work in schools and orphanages. And I'm like, yeah. but then the kids go back to their families and nothing's changed, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so we are always thinking of, ooh, the future generation will get us out of this in some way, instead of saying, well, what can we do for the current generation? And yeah. so for me, it was thinking, thinking of those types of things. And, and I had taken a square foot gardening class and I thought, well, why aren't, isn't anyone teaching square foot gardening here or any other sort of raised garden? Because, you know, if you didn't have access to land, but you at least had a spot next to your house, you could do a kitchen garden and, uh, you know, just looking at nutrition. And so I was looking at all of these different things and, and, and ultimately it was, if we work with families, it's going to be different than if, than organizations that go over there and, and work with orphanages and schools. And so, um, not that there's anything wrong with that. It was just not what I was feeling pulled to do. And so I, the, the original person that I had gone to Kenya with, we, uh, uh, like my original intention was just to help support her, but the program that she was teaching was not what I wanted to do there. And it didn't feel in alignment. And, and it, 
you know, she was actually one of my best friends and it caused a lot of contention and ultimately broke up our friendship, which that, that happens, you know, I mean, and you just, I don't, I don't have animosity. It was a struggle and it was really challenging and difficult. But at this point I'm like, I saw, again, I see God's hands in all of the work that I've done and in the work she's done. So, you know, ultimately it's, it's, part of all part of that plan. Um, mm. but at the time I, I actually was just going to start a group. Like I thought, Oh, I'll just, I'll just start a group. And, but I didn't know what it was going to be called. I didn't, I mean, again, this was like three or four months after I had gone to Kenya and it was summer. And I was like, I had, you know, just gone to a retreat and a drum circle. And I was like, I <laughs> drum and I wasn't thinking in terms of long-term at all. Yeah. And on July 12th, I got out of the shower. It was a Sunday. I was getting ready for church and I heard a voice say, go start a group on Facebook called 100 Humanitarians and I'll let you know why. And I was in a towel and I said, can I get dressed first? Cause I speak lots <laughs> of voices, you know? And, uh, mm. and the response was just do it. So I literally grabbed my phone in the towel, started a group on Facebook called 100 Humanitarians. And just started inviting some friends and saying, Hey, this is where I'm going to talk about any projects I want to do in Kenya. Um, and it grew. And a few weeks later, impressions started coming to my mind. You know, that's how it works for me is that it's like, cause I, I'm asking questions like, what is this? What am I doing? What, what's next? And, and the kind of tagline came in a question, which is what is the power of 100 people working together on any project in the world to create positive change? Well, 100 is kind of that tipping point, right? It's that point where you're like, wow, if we have 100 people involved, this is going to go somewhere and it builds momentum. And so I've always measured this in terms of 100. So it was the first 100 people that came to Kenya that took like three years, but then the other hun- the next hundred took a year and a half, right? So it's wow. things up dramatically after we hit that threshold. Um, and, and what happened was I was connected through friends to um, an organization that was called the Seven Pillars Foundation. And they said, hey, if you want to come under us and get immediate 501c3 status, you can be a DBA under us and, and um, be a nonprofit and we'll be your fiscal sponsors, which happens a lot in order to just fast track the, the 501c3 process. And so, so we did that. And so that's why it became an official organization. Otherwise it could have just continued to be a group, you know, but we did need, we did need the nonprofit status so that people would be able to donate to us. So we got that set up and then I got a bee in my bonnet and said, let's do an event. So I did a taste of Kenya in my backyard with 70 people and hired a chef and uh, raised some money. And at that point, my thought was, okay, I got to get back over there and actually do some scouting and figure out what I want to do. So November of 2015, I flew over and Moses and David and Christine picked me up and I just started researching and asking questions and saying, can we do this? Can we do this? Can we get, what about this? What about this? Cause I just didn't know poor Moses. He was like, Oh my gosh, I'm just going to say yes to shut her up. And he's regretted it ever since, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> but one of the things that we talked about was building a cultural center that kept coming to my mind was that we needed to build a cultural center to help teach and train and preserve the culture and the traditions of the Maasai, especially 
as technology creeps in and and um, just industrial industrialization, um, yeah. they are heavily they rely heavily on tourism. And you know, this is a nomadic tribe where their entire way of life was basically taken care of by their daily routines and and um, daily living. And now it's changed so much. And so, uh, so it was kind of this dream, but not really formed. Uh, but we did that during those two weeks that I was there. We went to a grocery store in a town called Narek, which is the closest bigger town to the Maasai Mara. We sat there for about five hours and we drew out some ideas for a cultural center. And I actually have that hanging on my wall right now. Mm -hmm. Like I have that as a sort of vision board thing. The cultural center that we're building looks nothing like what we drew out at all. Um, But it, it was a, Hey, this was that dream. This is what we talked about. And so, uh, so when I got back, I just kind of threw it out there on Facebook and was like, anyone want to go to Kenya with me and ended up having 26 people sign up. So I said to Moses, uh, how many people could we really bring? And he said, 14. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know what to do then. And he said, well, we'll do back to back expeditions. Just have the other team, you know, come and meet us. And I was like, you can do that. (laughs) Well, I didn't know he had never done that. I mean, he had never done anything like that. I yeah. didn't do anything like that. I had certainly never imagined in my head that I would take anyone to anywhere, much less Kenya. You know? yeah. So it was kind of funny because after the first expedition, we were so relieved that nobody died, <laughs> nobody got <laughs> malaria, you know, and, and we were like, oh, we did it. Oh, now we have to go pick up this second group. What the heck, you know? <laughs> And so people really knew, like, I can't believe they put their life in our hands because we were so, we had no idea at all what we were doing. We were winging it. And, and then we got back. And uh, so that was like the spring, early summer of 2016. And then we got back and I said, Hey, I'm doing another trip in in the fall and 28 people signed up. So we did it again. And after that, Mm -hmm. I said, no, I can't spend a month in Kenya twice a year. I mean, my kids were still young. And I was like, and I did take my daughter with me, but I was just like, I can't do this. And so then we split it into doing three trips a year, um, which, you know, is a lot easier. And then, you know, now we have another couple that takes a team each year. And so, um, and then, you know, all of a sudden it was like, oh, we've run 18 expeditions, 200 people have gone with us and all of these things have happened. And again, you know, every single day I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. People ask me for Hey, could you help me set up a nonprofit? I'm like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> Call an accountant. I have no idea. I mean, I can help you like set up a Facebook fundraiser, <laughs> you know, or something like that. But it really takes it, it's kind of an in the trenches on the ground. I've talked to so many other people that have done similar things, and all of us are just like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I got here, but yeah. you really have to rely so much on faith and inspiration because. It's, it's just not something that most people think that they're going to do, you know? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I just thought, you know, as you were talking about looking back, you can see God's hand in everything. And as you're telling all of this and you're saying, I don't know how Moses, you know, felt confident enough to do that. And I think that's so beautiful to think that God is working through so many people to be able to get 
this specific project started and I love it. So one of the things that I love about 100 Humanitarians is that your focus seems to be mostly teaching self-reliance and economic development. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, when you're talking about extreme poverty, which, you know, this is something that you can look up. I mean, there's plenty of articles and research about it. Uh, typically, they look at extreme po poverty as less than $1.90 a day, which if you can imagine trying to live on $1.90 a day, I mean, it's just, there's no way. And And honestly, it's not things aren't that much cheaper in Kenya. You know, you, we think like people will say, well, I thought Africa was cheap. I'm like, it's actually mm -hmm. not. Um, you go to the grocery store and their prices are the same or higher than ours. Uh, and, and it's just in shillings instead of dollars. So I'm like, oh, that's only 300 shillings. Oh wait, that's $3. That's the same price as, you know, home. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at that, we thought, okay, what are the real challenges that they're facing? Well, there's there's early marriage. So often um, these girls are sold into, they're basically trafficked, you know? I mean, it's arranged and it's, you know, it's cultural and all of that, but they, they're sold at the age of nine, 10, 11, 12 to men who are in their forties that have multiple wives. Um, typically a child bride is not sold, is not the first wife. Um, at least in my experience that I've seen. And, and so, so that's a huge problem. And then female genital mutilation, which is female circumcision, which is a horrific and barbaric and like the health and mental ramifications are just awful. Um, I, I teach people that come on expeditions. I'm like, look, every woman that you meet, pretty much will have been circumcised, every single one, because the tribes we work with practice that. It's illegal, early marriage is illegal, but when you're talking about extreme poverty in families where it's okay, they'll pay the dowry for this, all of a sudden we have you know, $100 and six cows or whatever the bride price is, then it, that's a game changer for them, right? And so mm -hmm. they're willing to do that and call it culture. Um, that is a practice that many, many Maasai are working to eradicate. And so our support in that effort is to say, okay, we will come in and we will teach self-reliance and economic development and you won't circumcise and marry off your girls, right? Like that, yeah. that's kind of the, the agreement. And so, so with that, we originally started, we created, this was in, back in 2016, and we created the business box for families concept. And a business box included a cow, a goat, chickens, gardens, and trees in order to just replenish the, the tree population because mm -hmm. it's, you know, it, deforestation is really prevalent in that area. Um, and so then we had a couple of cows die from disease. And so we said, uh, that's a really expensive investment to start off with. And I sat down with one of our community directors and said, okay, map out the actual economic impact that this has. And when I looked at that, I said, oh, well, wait a minute. Chickens are actually the biggest economic impact because if a cow is pregnant, they're not providing milk, you know, so they're only yeah. providing milk. And, and yes, from a, from a large chunk of money standpoint, it's big, but not, not when you're talking about just maintaining their lives. So we switched, we flipped the model 
instead of giving a cow first, we built gardens with them and taught stewardship and said, okay, if you can take care of your gardens, then we'll give you chickens. And if you can take care of your chickens, then we'll give you a goat. And so it built up from there. And we, we worked with, we started square foot gardening, but then, you know, wood deteriorates and there's termites. And so then uh, Jacob, who's our other community director came to me and he said, well, what about these vertical garden towers? And I was like, sold, because they were way cheaper and um, easier and didn't hurt the environment and stuff like that. So we started doing that um, around the summer of 2018. And that was awesome. And it completely took off. And then um, last year in 2019, we got a big, um, we, we went into a partnership with the USANA Foundation and their, or, their organization is to feed the world. And so they partnered with us to provide garden tower systems, which are two garden towers and a fence to protect from animals and a water storage tank for 200 families. This, mm-hmm. By the end of this month, we will have reached 100 families with that. And so this fall, we're actually going to be launching a Celebrate 100 campaign that is telling the stories of what we've done, you know, and what we've been able to accomplish. None of us are paid salaries. Um, this is all volunteer and I, I'm amazed that it's worked. It's, yeah. it, or I'm not because God, it's just got <laughs> hand in it. But now we've worked with, you know, probably close to 200 families in this, you know, over the five years and helping them in some ways, in one way or another. We've also built training centers, two training centers in our communities. And now we're just starting to breed animals instead of buy them. So we started with five goats and a super goat. <laughs> like <laughs> the super goat's name is Hope because the donor hopes that it will provide many goats. And so now we're up to 20 goats at our training center and we've got six cows and we've got 66 chickens and we've got about 40 garden towers. And so now the community can come to our training centers and learn how to take care of all of this and be part of that. And then they can um, and, you know, when they work at our training centers, they can get vegetables and milk and eggs and things like mm-hmm. that. We're starting micro chicken projects with families because with the eggs, when you give a family a rooster and five chickens and you start breeding them and then um, having the layers selling the eggs, you can get up to where you have 40 to 50 layers. Well, or like chicken egg layers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's like, that can be like $4 a day. So when you take a family from $1.90 a day to $4 a day, that literally takes them out of extreme poverty and it also doubles their income. That's huge. You know, so let's talk about that really quick. So this, the self-reliance part is with, let's talk about maybe the garden tower. Mm -hmm. So they get the garden tower, they learn how to take care of it. They are provided vegetables um, through the garden tower. And so that is feeding their family. And then where does the economic part come in? They can sell the excess. So the reason why we give them two is that a typical garden tower will feed a family of three to four um, a meal a day uh, of vegetables, right? So they're they're supplementing and bringing in the nutrition. Um, and then they can sell the excess vegetables if they choose to. And with that money, they can buy other things that their family needs. And yeah. so we've had... Um, we've had several families in this that they will then create roadside stands 
where they're just selling vegetables to people walking by. Or in, in the case of the eggs, Anita runs two commercial chicken farms. And so she's negotiated with egg brokers um, all over Kenya. And she said, yeah, I'll just connect I'll just connect these communities to egg brokers so that they automatically have a market for their eggs or they can go to the market and sell them or they can sell them to neighbors. I mean, the, the barter and exchange system in Kenya, we don't have that here in the U S I mean, we yeah. have yard sales, but we don't have it the way they do. I've never seen anything like it. If I say something to um, Moses, like, Oh, Hey, I need, earrings from that one store we went to three years ago and they're green and they look like this. He could get them for me within half an hour. Like it's <laughs> crazy. I've never seen anything like it. So I just call it the Maasai network, even though it's kind of a Kenyan network. And I'm like, I don't know. We'll ask the Maasai network and see what we can get. Right. So mm -hmm. it's all these, it, it, it's just the way that their currency works. And so when you give them more that, that they can work with, then they, and, and, and when you teach them, then they can expand their own economy, but you can't create something from nothing. But if it's like, okay, here you go, here's a hand up. And then what's great is that those families will go and help other families because Kenyans love to share. They love to mm -hmm. share their knowledge. Uh, we joke that when we go into a community, we find the five bossiest women <laughs> and we work with them first. Um, but the ones that are really the loudest because yeah. the other women flock to them and then they learn from them. And so we typically are not, um, you know, we're not going in and saying, we're going to save the world to change a whole community. We're looking for the leaders in that community that will then turn around and, and teach their community. And so um, and we do that because we're, we don't have a, a hero complex or a savior complex here. You know, most of us that go, most of the people that come with me, they're just regular people. They're not wealthy. They're not influential. They just want to come and help. And they're not people of means. Most of them fundraise heavily to go on these trips. They have yard sales. They sell pizza cards. They do whatever they need to do. And so, you know, they're not, um, they're, they're just, they just want to help. And so in doing that, we just say, okay, bring your skills, bring your ideas. We've had dentists, we've had doctors, uh, you know, we've had a whole variety of, um, the, you know, people that show up and they're like, well, I know how to do this. And we're like, great, teach that, you know? So yeah. it really is a melting pot of, and you know, we take people from all walks of life. So yeah, there's no, that demographic involved here. I think on one expedition we counted, we had 13 different demographics represented. It was pretty cool. Wow. And there were 15 of us. <laughs> so <laughs> That's beautiful. So um, as you talked about kind of at the beginning of talking about um, helping the people there, you said that teaching them the self-reliance and economic development is going to help prevent them marrying off their children in order to get um, the cows or whatever they need to feed their family. Um, there's another thing that you guys do that I really love that I'd like to talk about a little bit. Uh, um, you guys do the Days for Girls kits. So can we talk about that and how that is also help, helping with the sex slave trade industry there? Yeah. So Christine, who is our Women's Initiative Director, uh, she went to Days for Girls University in Uganda in 2015. Um, so it was the summer of 2015. And 
several of us who had gone on that trip in March fundraised at an event um, to get her the tuition to go. So it was a collaborative effort. There were a bunch of different people that were trying to make this happen for her. Uh, Christine herself was, um, she had to drop out of school because of her period, because she kept missing school. So what happens in Kenya and other developing countries is that once a girl starts her period, she will um, have to miss school if she doesn't have a way of taking care of it, if she doesn't have some sort of sanitary supplies. And, and many don't, most don't. And yeah. so in Christine's case, she got her period very young and she would have to miss school. They would send her home and she would have to miss school and just sit in a cornfield and bleed all day. Or, or she, didn't have, she didn't have anyone guiding her. Um, she had a stepmother that was very abusive. And so, um, so it was, I think when she was around 12 or 13, that mm -hmm. she ended up dropping out of school and was kicked out of her house and moved to Nairobi and moved to the slums and ultimately became a prostitute. Um, and she was pregnant at 14. And so in telling me this story and in telling us this story, we were like, we've you know, we've got to do something long-term to help her. She's a seamstress. She's an incredible seamstress. And so she was sewing clothing and stuff like that. And so when she went to Uganda and became certified as a Days for Girls ambassador, um, then it became a priority for me and for our organization to fundraise for the reusable, you know, they're like, they're kits because they're, um, but they're reusable fabric, right? So they're made out of washable flannel um, and they can last up to three years. And so, okay. Are they sanitary napkins or what is included? Yeah. So there's like two shields um, and that's what they're called. Right. And there are mm -hmm. two shields that kind of would look like an always pad with the wings, right? But they snap mm -hmm. to the underwear and then there's liners that tuck in and you swap out the liners and the okay. liners, when you wash them can just hang on the, I mean, they, they look like they would be handkerchiefs or something like that. So they're not as embarrassing. They're made of darker pattern colors so that they hide any stains and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and as part of it, what's awesome is that when we do a, a workshop over there, we're doing hygiene and we're teaching hand washing and we're teaching self-defense and we're teaching abstinence and we're teaching the, you know, the menstrual cycle and, and all of that. And we're encouraging girls, the girls to stay away from boys and to stay in school. And so mm -hmm. when you, when we start in sixth grade and we say, okay, this kit will last six something eighth. And then we come in and say, and now ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th, right? I mean, and usually once they get into a boarding school, often the government will provide those supplies. Um, but when they're at home, they don't have the supplies. And so like right now in the middle of a pandemic, the biggest challenge is that girls don't have access. And so men take advantage of them and they trade sex for pads. And so this prevents that. Well, there are a lot of people in the United States that will sew these days for girls kits. And so they would say, Oh, will you take these to Kenya? And my answer was no, we don't take kits to Kenya. We fundraise and we pay the women in Kenya to make the kits and distribute them because it keeps the economy there because mm -hmm. otherwise we are literally taking away from their economy. If we take kits over there. Now there are mm -hmm. countries that don't have days for girls sewing centers in country. So it's great to take them over there. But for me, 
you know, my mantra is if you have a sewing center, then for the love, it's $10, raise the money, pay them. Because Christine employs, um, depend, you know, just depending on the time of year, she'll employ 12 people to sew these kits. So that means that those 12 families are feeding their families and paying for school fees and all of that. And when we work with a family, we really try and say, hey, we'll, you know, we're going to give you this, but we want you to use the excess money to educate your kids and to buy the supplies that you need. Um, because if they educate their children, then when those children come back, their families are different. An mm. example is Vincent. Um, we started in 2016, we met Vincent and Mercy and Mercy has four children. Vincent's the oldest and, or three or four children. You know, I get that mixed up, <laughs> um, but Vincent was the oldest and he was in school and they had run out of money to pay for his school. So he actually was sent home because he didn't have the school fees. So we agreed to sponsor him and Mercy was one of the families that we gave a cow to. Now, Vincent, so that was 2016. Now it's 2020. Vincent, now he's worked in the sewing center because we, we helped to start a Dates for Girls Enterprise in Beaumet in his community. Um, he works in the sewing center and he runs the garden project that we're doing with USANA. So he runs a team of five late teens, early 20s men who are who go to all of these families and build these garden towers. Now they make $2 each per garden tower system. And the way that they're using that money is that I said, you know, I said to Vincent, so what are you doing with the money you're earning, building a house, starting my own chicken project, doing this. So it has this ripple effect on these boys and mercy has since, she works in the sewing center. She went to Uganda for a training. Uh, she, and, and this was literally, she, before we met her, she was working in a field every day, cutting vegetables for a dollar a day. That was what she did to help support her family. So in doing this now, she proudly says, you don't have to help me with any school fees with any of my other kids. I can pay my school fees. Well, school fees for high school can be anywhere from like 600 to $750 a year because it's boarding school. Mm. So take a dollar a day and feeding your family and then expand that into, yes, now we can pay school fees. And mm. I don't say that we did that. It was that she was trained and that she was trained by her community director and that she saw the innovation she could create because she was given a hand up. So we yeah. just start the ball rolling, but they're the ones that run with it and really create the difference in their families, which is how it should be. Because if you For go sure. in there with the, you know, rah, rah, Tarzan, I'm going to rescue you, you know, we're the heroes, shame on you honestly, like that is not okay with me. And that is the problem because it actually facilitates more dependence and neediness on Americans. During this pandemic, we haven't been there since March. And, you know, for 13 weeks, they fed 150 families a week. We've started chicken projects. We've continued the garden projects. Um, all of these huge projects have continued and we're not there. And I keep yeah. joking, man, they don't need us. We just put ourselves out of the job. <laughs> but isn't that the goal? For sure. No, isn't that the goal? So, so yeah, we actually have, well, we have two official days for girls enterprises, but then we have a third sewing center where the women are learning to 
make uh, school uniforms and hope socks, which are thermal cookers, fabric thermal cookers. They sew underwear for women um, and girls in rescue centers and street women. There's a whole ton of stuff that we brought in um, as part of this, as just as part of this. If it aligns with what we're trying to accomplish, uh, then we align with that. So yeah. I love it. That's beautiful. So before we go, let's talk a little bit about your guest house and kind of your vision for that. Well, the guest house, uh, I've spent the last five years fundraising, you know, like a dollar at a time here and there. Um, The guest house is actually going to be a place where our teams can go and stay, but also we will be able to rent it out to other groups and families that want to go over to Kenya and serve. It's right in the heart of the Maasai Mara, which is the number one safari destination in the world. Um, Moses and David are Maasai warriors and safari guides. And so they, um, like, basically you can go over there, you can stay in the guest house, you can work with the families there, we'll set you up with projects, you can go on safari, you can have a cultural experience, cultural immersion with the Maasai. These are, you know, the, these are the people that I know and love and I know their names and they know mine. And, and so this is my extended family on the other side of the world yeah. now. And, and so, it's safe, right? You've done, you've done a lot of measures to ensure that people are safe when they're going over there as well. Uh, honestly, the challenges are more, um, physical health, right? I mean, you have to be in good physical health because you, you, malaria or dengue fever, yellow fever, things like that. Um, Mm. I've never had anyone get malaria, knock on wood. So that's good. This isn't a high malaria area um, because it's drier. So the climate on the Maasai Mara is much like central Utah. I mean, honestly, when I drive through there, I'm like, where am I? Um, (laughs) The Maasai are, you know, they grew up killing lions and they're trained fighters. Honestly, they're called warriors for a reason. And they're with us the entire time. Um, you know, it, it, we're probably safer there than we are in downtown Salt Lake city or certainly Chicago. Um, so it's, it's all relative, right? When you talk about safety is that anywhere you travel in the world, you're, or walk out your front door and you're putting yourself at risk. So Yeah. yeah, it, but in that area, it's very safe. People know us it's very remote, you know, and the cultural center is on a few acres of land and we're 45 minutes from the closest big town. Uh, you're really talking about little sort of strip malls of kiosks and yeah, yeah I don't know. It, it's not, um, it's just, it's not a high traffic area in terms of um, any sort of crime or anything like that. Um, So staying in the guest house, yeah, I mean, it's a gated, fenced compound, you know? Um, Yes. But, and then going out and and meeting with these families and serving in the community and going on safari, um, you know, those are all taken care of and handled by our team over there. So, so the goal is, is that that will ultimately become a fundraiser. Again, keeping the economy in Kenya that the goal of the guest house and any additional housing that we build and the goal of the cultural center in terms of monetization is to provide jobs, uh, to help create an economy in that area and to also help with funding projects in that area. Mm. So it's just the next level for us as an organization to be able to expand on 
our, you know, on our funding and stuff like that. And the cool thing is that we can do retreats there. Um, you know, the sky's the limit. People can come from all over the world and it's not dependent on me running an expedition anymore. Exactly. And families can go over there. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. So how can people learn more about a hundred humanitarians and kind of the different ways that they can donate or if they want to head over there, what's the best way for them to find it? Um, The best thing to do is to go to our website. We're all over Facebook. So we have a page and a group. Um, I've been running the group now for five years. And um, so to go and get on our email list, that's where we put information and updates about expeditions and the projects that we're doing. Uh, Your donations, 100% of your donations go to these projects. They don't go to pay salaries. Um, even on the Kenyan side, we don't pay salaries. We pay commissions based on work that they're doing. So they're kind, yeah. of, they're kind of contractors, but it's not a month to month salary um, setup. It's usually when we're in country or if they're working on specific projects. And then it's, you know, a pretty minimal amount that goes to that. Usually that kind of, those kinds of funds come more from expedition costs, you know, that, yeah. that will that will cover those versus our Facebook fundraisers or our online fundraisers. Honestly, becoming a monthly donor is huge for us. A lot of people donate a kit a month. Um, we're committed to a thousand kits per year, the days for girls kits in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And so having that taken care of with just a kit a month, 10 bucks a month is really huge for us. Um, and huge for them, you know, yeah. to be able to just rely on that funding because you know, we don't pay Christine. Otherwise we just pay her to make the kits for us. And $7 goes to materials and $3 goes to the people who are helping. sew. and the, you know, the Christine's actual company. So that's a great way to get involved. Um, it's just to go to our website, sign up for our email and, and get updates, join the group, join the page. Um, 100humanitarians.com or .org, both go to them. I'm updating the website right now because it's that time of year. I do it once a year, um, usually heading into fall. And so updating with a lot of stories. And like I said, uh, we're going to be launching a Celebrate 100 campaign this fall to share the stories and the successes and the experiences that we've had. So, um, and we love for people to get involved. Ultimately, you know, the guest house is literally being finished as we speak. And then we've got to get furniture and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, ultimately you'll be able to book it just like an Airbnb and go over there and stay and work with our team. And, um, you know, we have training and all of that. So you go through a training process prior to going, uh, so that you know what to expect and know what our expectations are if you're serving in our communities. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. And I really appreciate just all the information that you've given about Kenya and about how we can help the people there. Um, So thank you so much for being here. And thank you all for listening and tuning in to my A Light in the Darkness podcast. If you are inspired by this, maybe you could share it with somebody who you feel like needs to hear it. Um, You can also follow me and maybe leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. When you do that, that actually helps me to be able to be seen more when people search for their podcasts. So it will be really helpful. And I hope you guys have a wonderful week and can find a light in your own personal darkness. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. 
I want to give a special thanks to my son Carter for recording and writing our intro and outro music for this podcast. If you want to hear more of his music, you can find him on Instagram at CarterGuitar456. 